As has already been mentioned, again, what a beautiful morning God has blessed us each with today to be able to come together, to enjoy not only His handiwork about us in creation, but also to consider the vast spiritual blessings available to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come together this morning, a lesson that we shall consider is one which on the surface may appear a bit unusual. But I'm convinced that it's one which we each would do well to familiarize ourselves with as we contemplate some of the movements that are currently vast and about us in the actual character of the Lord's body itself. In fact, some of the things that we'll share this morning will be a bit to the point, but nonetheless, those matters, if revealed in the Word of God, are intended to be to the point. They are intended for us to fully appreciate, and they are also intended for us to defend. The Apostle Paul once claimed in Philippians 1 that he was set for the defense of the gospel. That word set means to imply his character of open defense as he opened and alleged the truth and character of the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 17 verse 3. With that said this morning, let me encourage you to note one of the subtitles or the subtitle that appears to this lesson before us. The issue concerns reuniting. And before the lesson is over, we will, of course, make note of what may good be said about that, but also what potential difficulties and problems will, in fact, lay before us. There will be an extensive historical section to the lesson this morning, so I would ask that you bear with me. As we begin this journey, we shall start in the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew and move forward from there all the way until even modern times. And in so doing, our interest will be related to the nature of the church that our Savior purchased and bought. And thus, back in Matthew 16, let's begin that journey. Our Savior promised to construct but one body. When in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, the very conversation took place in which Peter there said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was our Savior who in response to that said that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And thus our Savior, though it was not yet in existence, promised, promised to build but one body. Notice that he used a singular word, ecclesia, church, to describe it. And so we begin here by noting that that promise came to full fruition in the second chapter of the book of Acts, when there Peter and the others preached the fullness and truth of the gospel. And as about 3,000 gladly received and responded, they were baptized for the remission of their sins, verses 38 and 41. And as such, they became Christians, Acts 2, verse 47. To have said all that, though, is to also say that that church as established was exceedingly unique. Paul, in fact, could say there is one body, Ephesians 4, verse 4, and that one body was purchased with the very blood of our Savior, and the very character of that body is such that its uniqueness and purity stand orders above anything that man of his own nature could contemplate. In Ephesians 5, verse 27, note the purity there described. He said that it might be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We begin to see then the purity that Jesus designed and desired for that body, a purity which was to be perpetual, not just for one specific place and time, but for all places and all times. As we read the New Testament, we gain a pristine vision of this beautiful body, 
But as you quickly see on that screen before me, the church did not remain as pure as our Savior intended it. In fact, even in the very context of the New Testament, there are many references to the fact that problems and issues arose. Let's just notice a few of them. In Acts, the 20th chapter, here on that missionary journey in which the Apostle Paul himself went, the elders in Ephesus were called to him. From that city of Miletus, Paul addressed them, and this is what he said, beginning in verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That verse sounds beautiful and pristine, but Paul wasn't finished. For in verse 29, he goes on to say, Now after my departing shall grievous wolves arise, not sparing the flock. And he still wasn't finished. For in verse 30, he said, speaking perverse things and leading disciples astray or away. Paul thus to those elders said, Brethren, I'm telling you that once I depart, after the time that I leave, there will be grievous ones arise, even of your own number shall men arise, speaking things that are not right, speaking things that are perverse. Their desire shall be to draw disciples after them. That simply whets our appetite for 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, where there to his young son in the faith, Timothy, Paul said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. What do you mean, Paul, some shall depart from the faith? Let's let him finish. Some shall depart from the faith. Notice that in the next verse it is described of them that they shall in fact follow seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, and what's more, they will forbid to marry, and the character, verse 3, they will refuse to accept those things that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In each of these passages, we clearly see that even in the first century days, there were departures from the faith that were predicted, foretold, prophesied, if you will, and in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 3, an extensive description is given of the man of sin. And Paul said, there shall come a falling away. All of that's to say that the purity with which the church was originally established and the purity that originally described her was not a purity that in fact remained and maintained itself throughout the stages and eras of time. I've placed at the very bottom of that screen, this was the very time in which the movement of Catholicism began. When brethren, ultimately in moving aside from the truth, became to form a hierarchy within the church itself, and one by one, the teachings of God were replaced with the thoughts and orders and commandments of men. By the year 606 A.D., the fullness of Catholicism had arisen. The first pope was there, declared universally to be accepted. And all that's to say that notice how far the truth had moved from its application in the hearts and minds of men. As we move to the next screen, let's continue that historical segment. For the history continues, if you will. Over a thousand years elapsed and passed. And we arrived at a time when, in the midst of the reality of the Catholic Church, it was appreciated that what one read about in the Bible was not what was being practiced and openly 
taught in the nature and character of the, of the Catholic Church. There were those good-intentioned individuals who desired to reform that church, and thus the movement known as the Reformation movement began. I've listed a few notable individuals that we might appreciate. Martin Luther, perhaps the most well-known, but one should not overlook the notion of Ulrich Zwingli, for he was just as powerful and just as noteworthy as was Martin Luther. But again, their idea was that as they appreciated the teachings of the New Testament, they did not seem in harmony with what was currently practiced by the accepted Catholic Church. And as such, they desired to reform. That is to say, to incorporate various changes and modifications to that church so that it would be more in harmony with the character of the New Testament. I made mention also that for that Reformation movement, there was some success in the sense that at least some of those in power came to realize that there were difficulties and issues that must be addressed. But it must be honestly admitted that the movement was not nearly as successful as those such as Lutherans Vingley would have appreciated and would have desired. That movement, in fact, continued onward to produce what for you and me is its most notable byproduct, that is to say, the current denominational landscape. This was the very time in which various things such as the Methodist and the Presbyterian and other types of recognized religious movements began. Isn't it interesting? We now have advanced 1,500 years or more from the time of the establishment of the church in Acts 2, and yet these organizations began then. As one sees then near the end of the 18th century, we began to see that this Reformation movement, many began to see that it was never going to be as successful as desired simply because, again, the heart and core of what was its foundation, namely the Catholic Church, was problematic. It did not match the scriptures as they were revealed. And thus, about a century later, we come to another movement, a name that is different, and please note the difference with me. This one is called the Restoration Movement. In Europe, specifically Western Europe, and also in the Americas, by that time, this land had been settled and many individuals had come to experience freedom here. There was a notable recognition that if ever this church of the New Testament were to be appreciated again, that it would have to be by a return to the simple prescriptions of the Bible. No creeds of man could be used. No ideas and thoughts of man could ever replace a single prescription of the Scriptures. It had to be the Bible, nothing more and nothing less. That thought and idea was very captivating. It was very appealing. In fact, so appealing was it that it has well been described like a prairie grass fire that flamed across the American frontier. Individuals came to love the thought of the Bible and it alone. It was during that time that some of the slogans with which you and I have become familiar were coined, such as, we speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. That's but one idea and slogan where there was not an intent to reform anything. There was an intent to return and restore what one reads about in the New Testament. Such notable individuals, again, with which you're probably familiar 
Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, Raccoon John Smith, and a host of others who blazed across the American frontier preaching book, chapter, and verse and nothing else. No creeds of men were employed. No thoughts of humanity were used to form the character of what one must do to be saved. It was only what God had revealed. As that movement became so exceedingly popular, we can't help but think about how it's reminiscent of the early chapters in the book of Acts. When Peter and those other apostles preached the truth of the scriptures, the Bible says the word of God prevailed, Acts 12, 24. And so much so that in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus, they heaped together their books of sorcery and burned them, realizing their inferiority to the truth of the gospel. You see, this restoration movement was so greatly profound and powerful in the sense that its main idea was simply to bring into existence again not something fundamentally new but that of which one reads in the New Testament the beauty of the Lord's Church that's an exciting historical scene isn't it we've come now almost 2,000 years since that time until the character of the restoration movement but one might well note and I stated at the bottom of that screen the restoration movement itself was not without some difficulties. It was not without some problems and issues. I have listed a few of them for your consideration. Even within that movement, after about 80 to 100 years of great success, questions began to arise about what is the proper means of interpreting this book. That is to say, is there room for various and sundry interpretational methods and styles? But not only that, what about mission societies like used to be present about a hundred years ago? And what about the usage of mechanical instruments of music in the character of worship itself? Does this book authorize it or not? As those questions began to arise, individuals had different answers. And those answers, in fact, redounded unto a tremendously great division between groups who held to one answer and groups who held to another. Let me highlight the nature and the most fundamental thing that separated those two groups. It had to do with that first item that we mentioned. How do you interpret the Bible? There were some who in fact expressly declared that anything that is not expressly forbidden by God, he allows, he approves, and he openly accepts. In fact, Martin Luther had been the first to openly state that, but since his day, many others had adopted it, and even in the Restoration Movement, there were some who openly declared that that was the proper means of interpreting the Holy Scriptures. On the other hand, there were others who said, not so. There were others, again, beginning from the days of Ulrich Zwingli and continuing, who said, no, it's just the opposite of that. Whatever God does not expressly approve and allow, he forbids. Notice again that those are exactly opposite of each other. One particular group said, whatever is not forbidden is allowed. Another group says, whatever God does not expressly approve is forbidden. They're exact opposites. Maybe it isn't shocking nor surprising that in the years and decades following the recognition of that, the distinction between them widened. What may have started out was a small ditch 
ultimately became a gigantic chasm, a canyon. And there seemed to be such that there was little, if any, harmony at all between the two groups. By about the middle part of the 1800s, it was well recognized of the distinction. But a half century later, it became a matter of public recognition as well. That public recognition of 1906 was as follows. There was an open recognition on the part of our land of a particular movement of those known as the Church of Christ. But there was also that other set or group known as the Christian Church. Began by name of Disciples of Christ, but now more known as the Christian Church. The reason all this becomes so significant is note with me the date. 1906. Last year, there was a significant movement among people in our own land. Some who were part on one side, the Church of Christ, if you will. Some members of the other, namely the Christian Church. Their grand idea and thrust was to reunite these groups under the umbrella of peace and harmony. And in so doing, to bring back a character of what once was true in the latter part of the Restoration Movement. That was the idea, that was the desire, and that was the wish. To bring these groups back together that were officially recognized as being split somewhat over a century ago. I'd ask you to think with me about that for just a moment in light of the following. When it was recognized about that division and the split, many other well-known names can easily now be mentioned. There were those such as N.B. Hardeman and other characters who are so well appreciated from the history who tried with great defense, such as David Lipscomb, to maintain the fullness of recognition of God's Word and nothing else. They understood that if indeed that restoration plea was to ever meet its reality, this book must be the guide. And so throughout their life they defended by way of writing and preaching, the nature of the conservative view of the Scriptures, how that indeed God approves that which He approves and everything else is not allowed. As they defended that, the defense had little effect at that time upon the Christian church. But as you and I come to this point in time today, there is an active movement by those in power, I might add, influential members of both the Church of Christ and the Christian Church who wish to forget history, bring the groups together, and pretend that nothing is amiss. Pretend that there's unity on every front. Might we inquire a moment as we return and think about what it was that caused the split initially? What was it that disunited that group? May we reconsider that for the latter portion of our lesson today? And I ask, could you and I, as Jeff Walling is doing, and as other individuals who are preaching around our land that it's time to bring these groups back together, may we submit that it is not as straightforward as they may lead us to think, because again, let's let God address the subject. If there's to be unity, on what basis must it be? And if there is to be unity, how must it be accomplished? And if there is to be unity, what are the steps to make it happen? You and I can easily see that it won't be difficult to address that. Let us, in fact, make note of this. As we seek to answer the following ideas, where must you and I stand?
I noted that there were some various issues that were a part of it, such as the usage of mechanical instruments in worship, the support of missionary societies and other matters. May I submit that there is one fundamental issue and all the others are byproducts of that. What about this interpretation of the Bible? God answers in the book itself how it's to be interpreted. We must never forget that. God tells us how it's to be interpreted. Do you remember a moment ago that we stated there's these two large classes? Some think that whatever is not expressly forbidden is allowed. Others think that whatever God doesn't approve is forbidden. Well, which is it? Let's let the Bible answer that question. It should not be my response nor yours. It ought not be my perspective nor yours. In Genesis, the sixth chapter, if we turn back the clock now several thousand years to the early stages of time, we recall that God had decreed that a flood would come upon the earth, and in the process of preparing, God directed Noah to construct an ark. We each remember, and we've studied it somewhat recently on Sunday morning, about many of the features of that ark. But perhaps one thing of note, of what wood was it to be made? Go for wood. Now let's pause and think about this. When God declared to Noah, of gopher wood thou shalt make it. What did that mean about oak and hickory and cypress and shittim wood and sycamore and all the others? Was it necessary for God to say, use gopher wood, Noah, but don't use cypress and don't use oak and don't use hickory and don't use sycamore? Well, obviously, that would be ridiculous. Once God specified the wood that was to be used, that automatically did away with all the others. He did not need to condemn their usage for once he had made note of which wood to use, that automatically outlawed and forbade, if you will, all of the other types present. That becomes significant when we remember that there were other kinds of wood in the Old Testament that were used for more remarkable purposes in some ways. The Ark of the Covenant, for example, later in Exodus chapters 25 and following, was made of shittim wood, a very precious and beautiful kind of wood. But it didn't matter what Noah's own perception may have been. He may have preferred another kind of wood. fact is, when God said gopher, that eliminated it everything else. It would appear from that early age then that we are leading or at least lending toward that interpretation that involves that whatever God doesn't approve is not allowed. But let's consider another one. In the 10th chapter of the book of Leviticus, now we are under the law of Moses. We have switched covenants, if you will, switched eras, and in this time, what is it that occurred? Aaron had several sons, but names of two of them were Nadab and Abihu. Isn't it amazing that these two boys had the desire to offer worship unto God, to offer acceptable sacrifice, but as the verse closes, one thing was unusual. They proceeded to offer fire unto the Lord, and the book calls it strange fire, and that's defined as follows, which he commanded them not. Notice, God did not command this fire. In what way did God respond? Was he acceptable of their worship? He was not. In fact, he killed them on the spot. Fire leapt forth, if you will, and 
from that occasion and at that time their lives were lost. And thus might we inquire, were they at liberty to augment what God had revealed with their own thinking and their own perspective? They were not. They had to remain rigidly fixed to what God had revealed and were given no allowance to go beyond that. Absolutely there we see the premise that what was not expressly allowed was forbidden. That's two passages in the Old Testament that seem very clearly to tell us what the intent of Bible interpretation was. I have listed some others for your consideration. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, Given what we have earlier learned then, what should we interpret when we note then that on the occasion of the Lord establishing the Lord's Supper, he used unleavened bread and fruit of the vine? Two very specific elements. What then today might we conclude if someone had the thought and said, well, God never said not to use milk and peach cobbler. Would that be acceptable elements to use at the Lord's Supper? There is no passage anywhere in the New Testament that says not to. It is, in fact, the same as it was with Noah's Ark, isn't it? When the Lord said, unleavened bread and fruit of the vine, that outlawed, if you will, forbade anything else. It doesn't matter what perspective you or I may have, does it? Isn't it beautiful to see the simplicity of that idea? When God specifies all other options are no longer options. That statement about the Lord's Supper directly then answers all of the other issues that were raised over a century ago in this movement. Think back to the music and worship again. In the New Testament then, does God authorize the usage of mechanical instruments of music and worship? Does one find mention anywhere of a congregation in the first century that used such? Does God anywhere command it? We do find the following in Ephesians 5.19, speaking the truth to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and milking melody in your heart to the Lord, reiterated in Colossians 3.16 with very similar wording. Notice we also find many examples of where references to that are made. In Hebrews 13.15, praising Christ with the fruit of our lips. Again, it would seem easily enough to be said that whatever God does not expressly allow is absolutely forbidden. And thus, when he specified singing, that does away with any usage of a mechanical instrument. When he specifies what kind of music he wants and it's vocal, that does away with any usage of a mechanical instrument for the pleasing of him in worship. To say all of that, then, is to say we've come, in a sense, full circle. There have been those who have desired to simply rake away history and bring these together, even though there is a fundamental distinction about the way they interpret the Bible. There can never be harmony. There can never be unity so long as the groups do not interpret the Scriptures the same way. So long as they do not, then look upon the fact that what God does not expressly approve, He absolutely forbids. That leads me to some of the final comments in of our time this morning. There are several general passages I've listed for your consideration as well. In Matthew 15, what did our Lord say about those who replaced the commandments of God with the doctrines of men? How was their worship described? Vain. He said, but in vain do they worship me 
teaching for doctrines, the commandments of me in Matthew 15, 9. Or consider the text that was presented to us this morning in 2 John, verses 9 through 11. Can you and I consciously bid God speed to someone who does not respect the authority and purity of the Word of God? God will hold us accountable for encouraging false doctrine. He will hold us accountable for holding the right hand of fellowship with those who do not hold the purity and truth of the unadulterated gospel. It's just that simple. And thus, in conclusion, to this point in the lesson, could we not say, we would desire as much as anyone the unity of all people on earth beneath the banner of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2, verse 10. He is the forerunner that leads us to heaven, Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. He is the one who is the author of our eternal salvation, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, he prayed that all men would be one, John 17, verses 20 and 21. Paul asserted there was but one body and that there's a platform of unity that is tremendous in its nature, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 7. But to say all that, God warns over and again about fellowshipping or encouraging those who are involved in matters not approved by the Word of God. Let me read again 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine... Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. In light of that text, there can be no reuniting. There can be no unity unless there's repentance on the part of those who, in fact, have been erroneous in their Bible interpretation, who've approved for a century those things that the Bible condemns. Can we not then say that we must be very careful as those about the country are preaching and encouraging this reuniting? For unless there's repentance on the part of the erring and repentance on the part of those at fault, God will not recognize any unity concocted by the mind of man. And you and I, as those interested in entering heaven some sweet day, those desirous of being right and justified before Him must stand where the Bible stands. We must speak where the Bible speaks, and we must be silent where it remains silent. If we can conclude our lesson in this morning, I've listed these thoughts that I hope will summarize some of the main things that we've mentioned. We certainly would say it's a noble idea to consider reuniting, but there can be no reuniting unless there's a common foundation. And that foundation must be this book and nothing else. It must be a rightly dividing of this book, 2 Timothy 2.15. It must be a proper interpretation of it, as we read in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul expressly told the Corinthian brethren, you must not go beyond what is written. And thus, that answers our issue. Whatever God doesn't approve is absolutely forbidden, disallowed, and thus we must say then today that those about our land who are preaching that we throw open open arms of fellowship and welcome back in those that have been erring and don't demand any statement of repentance and don't demand any matter of recognition of wrong, 
that cannot be done in the light of heaven with an approval. Thus, let us be blessed again by thinking about the purity of the gospel. Have you obeyed it today? Have you allowed it to control, guide, and reverberate in your life? If you haven't become a Christian, realize that the Son of God died on the cross at Calvary for you. He shed his blood. In John 19, 34, when that Roman soldier pierced the gentle side of Christ, forthwith came forth blood and water. John 19, 34. Four verses earlier, Jesus had cried, It is finished. The plan of salvation's elements had been fundamentally established. Christ had died as a sacrifice for all humanity. Have you accepted that and allowed his blood to cleanse you from sin? If you have, you know how glorious it was and what a blessing to your life it has been. If you haven't been faithful to that, return to your first love. Come back to him. He not only desires you back, it brings great excitement to the thought of his word upon earth, to the thought of the cause of Christ. If you, though, have never become a Christian, if you've never allowed his blood to cleanse you from sin, realize that while in sin you're lost. You are not in fellowship with God. You are not in fellowship with Christ. You are not a member of his saved body, Ephesians 5.23. Thus, you need to do that which he has commanded in order to make that happen. You need to believe upon him. Repent of those sins. Confess his glorious name as your Savior, your Master, as the only begotten Son of God. And then allow yourself to be buried in water, immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And if we could help you do that today, it'd be honorable for us, but more important, it'd be eternally saving for you. If we could aid you in that way today, don't hesitate, don't put it off, don't procrastinate, but realize that the days, in fact, we know not when they shall end. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1 If we could help you in response today publicly, will you not let that happen, make that happen, even as together we stand and as we sing.